into to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so we are continuing into the book of 1 Samuel, as well as the book of Matthew, so no jumps around any other books this week. Uh, and so we will continue in the story of Saul, and, and this Saul who has chosen to be the king after the people have cried out that they wanted a king. Yeah, so interesting. When you know how things end with Saul, which they don't end well, it's really interesting to kind of read about his beginnings and how different they are yeah, than what you would imagine. And just like the unique, inter- like the first per- the first king is going to be a Benjaminite. Like it's probably still pretty fresh on their minds, just the, the, the awfulness of the tribe of Benjamin at the end of the book of Judges of the Civil War and right. everything that's going on. And it's like, um, okay, our first king's from the tribe of Benjamin. Well, and, and even the blessing they got from Jacob, which was like, they're going to be a problem to all their brothers. Right. Uh, and But he is tall. He does look the part. Uh, this is important. Uh, we get physical descriptions here. So something about him being tall is significant, which uh, probably just looked like a king, but we're also going to see uh, David have to fight a tall man later on in the storyline. And so uh, that happens. But uh, I think one of the most uh, interesting details is that like he's looking for lost donkeys. And so it's like donkeys are stubborn, but they don't get lost. Like the fact that you're hurt, like this is a bad donkey owner at this <laughs> point. Um, and, and, and so it's just not looking great. And I think this is such, such a brilliant metaphor that, that Israel who's, who's been, who's been described by God, like God has described himself already to them that he would be their shepherd and they would be like sheep. And, and not only that, but Moses himself was a shepherd. We're going to see David be a shepherd. We're going to see Jesus be a shepherd, like all these sort of shepherd analogies. But what do we get? We get a donkey herder and not a good one at that. And it's almost like the commentary of like, Israel, you should be like sheep in need of a good shepherd. But right now you're acting like a bunch of donkeys. And so I'm going to put this donkey herder over you uh, until you're ready for the shepherd king. Yeah. And so that's and so I think good. the other thing we we can observe is that Saul is not very observant. He doesn't know much about God. Everybody knows about this guy who's a seer. Saul doesn't know who he is even. And then meets him and is like, oh, hey, have you heard of that guy? He doesn't even recognize him. So he's not, we know he's not a super observant yep. guy or not very aware of how God is at work. And so, um, but yeah, he comes and, and ultimately gets uh, anointed as king. It's it's super interesting because it doesn't feel like Samuel said a lot about kingship, but then suddenly just like kind of pours oil on him. And it's sort of like, here you go, whether you like it or not, uh, Saul's going to be this king. And uh, it's, yeah, I, I kind of feel a little bit for Saul. He just kind of went out looking for donkeys, not looking to be a king, but um, he sort of comes back home with this. But uh, before he comes back home, he's going to get this sort of unique supernatural confirmation by these three different signs uh, about um, uh, that he's to look out for that it's very clear that he is going to be the king yeah but I, I don't know that he's willing to fully embrace that calling yet we even see through the fact that when his uncle's like what happened he doesn't say anything about being anointed king he talks about meeting Samuel and his donkeys uh, so I don't and we'll see later you know hiding behind the baggage like Saul's not ready to to own the position and the role that God has given him. Yeah. And, and whether or not he deals with the Philistines right away, or it seems like a delay, um, all that, I, I think is just driving home that Saul's like not really taking a whole lot of initiative right now. And not only that, but like he's given a lot of details to confirm, but then he seems to not really care quite as much about the details after the confirmation of him as king. Um, and, and, and so, so Samuel's going to have to make this, public proclamation of Saul as a king um, because it seems like Saul's not 
taking the initiative to own it. But um, not only that, but he's hiding and, and uh, it's going to be so different than David, uh, but he's hiding here. But, but Samuel rightfully is reminding them that Yahweh's really their king, um, but, but maybe there's hope. Uh, Saul gives him, or Samuel gives Saul the, the, like the law. This is what kings do and kings don't do. Um, and, and yeah, so there's a little bit of hope. Who knows? We're kind of waiting to see how this Saul guy is going to turn out. Uh, <laughs> okay. maybe he'll do all right. Um, and his first act as a king is a successful one, right? He slices up this oxen, sends it to all the tribes as a sort of like, Hey, let's be uni- united in this. And he unites the tribes and he delivers the Amorite threat. Which is good. Right? Yeah. So let so let's pull back for a second and just compare Saul to Gideon. Um, you know, they both were not necessarily confident in what they were supposed to do. They both were called by God, and they were kind of given a role and a position that they did not feel equipped for. Um, Saul lacks trust in God for it, though, and we see Gideon trust. And so I don't know. Maybe Saul's defeat of the Ammonites is a, is a form of trust in God, but I think that that they start out similarly, but pretty quickly we see getting go one direction and trusting God, at least at the beginning. And Saul kind of never gets there. Yeah. Yeah. We don't get the, the clear understanding that Saul is absolutely putting his full faith in Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who's truly initiating and winning the battles, all those kind of things. But Saul's the tallest. Saul's probably pretty mighty and, and wins a battle like you'd expect, just like all the other countries. Um, but we're going to see where his faithlessness ultimately causes a whole lot of problems for him. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it was a spirit that was working on Saul that caused him to want to go get these Ammonites, but we don't see any sort of heart change. We don't see inward conviction or transformation. We don't see Saul being jealous for God's glory or even exhibiting much love for his country or his people. He's just kind of doing what ends up on his heart to yeah. do. Yeah. And the kingdom's renewed. They're united and sort of like, uh, okay, is this going to last? Like things are seemingly heading in the right direction. Will this continue? Will this all be the right kind of king? Um, all those sort of things. Yeah. I mean, there's something really great about Israel coming together and, and Israel being united, the kingdom being renewed. Um, but I also think Israel is filled with misplaced hope and this hope that the king is going to be their answer and solution to all their problems and concerns. They expect military strength and prosperity and success now that they have a king to lead them. But this is misapplied. It's misunderstood. They are to depend on and be led by God alone. And they are going to continue to be disappointed and hurt and suffer as they put their hope in leaders and rulers instead of God. And then we get Samuel's farewell address, which um, at first it's like, this feels out of place, but this is also going to... come right sort of as the downfall of Saul starts taking place. And so uh, maybe maybe it's a hint that um, as Samuel goes, now Saul will also sort of uh, take a downward turn, um, even though we know Samuel's not going to go anywhere for a little bit. But um, yeah, they, they, they know he's old. Um, and, and that's about all we know at this point of, of him, but he speaks this indictment uh, against, uh, Israel at this point where he's like, look, like no, uh, but it, they want a king to reign over you and the Lord, your God, when the Lord, your God was a king, like he's pointing out like the Lord was already your king, but you still wanted a king. So you have this king that you've chosen and it's who you asked for and behold, the, the Lord put this king over you. So it's sort of pointing to the future of like, this is what you guys have asked for. And we're going to see it kind of play out how I thought you guys should have. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a real emphasis on the faithfulness of God. You know, we talk a lot about God's covenant. We talked about it last week and we see God reiterating that he is faithful to Israel and Israel is not faithful to him, but he will always be faithful to Israel no matter what. 
Though I do like a few lines of dialogue here where it's, where it's they, the Israelites admit, like, we have added to our sins this evil mm-hmm. to ask for ourselves a king. Like, they own it. And, and, and Samuel's, like, absolutely sort of lovingly pastoral in his response. He says, do not be afraid. And he, but he points out, you have done all this evil. He's like, yes, that is true. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And I think those are encouraging words. Like, yes, you screwed up, but God's gracious. Walk in obedience. Move forward. It'll be all right. And, and it will turn out okay. Like, God will raise up the, the right king. Uh, you messed this up, but God, it's not beyond the bounds of God ultimately correcting. Um, and he's going to do that even before Saul dies. And so, um, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. So, so Saul then- goes... Oh, go ahead. Saul goes to fight with the Philistines. Yeah. Yeah, this is great. He goes out to do what he's supposed to do. Yeah, but then he like claims victory before they've actually won. (laughs) Mission accomplished. But wait a minute. They're still fighting us. Um, And we lost. Yeah. yeah. Everybody hide. Right. And not only that, but then then there's sort of the the wait for Samuel seven days kind of teaching. And so it seems to have held over at least in the timeline. Um, and so, but Saul doesn't seem to want to wait for the priest to come and do the thing that the priest does. Like this is the job for the priest. They're going to be a nation of priests with priests in it. And the priests do the job of the sacrifice. And Saul seems to kind of have no regard for that. The same way people looked into the, the, the tap, the, the Ark of the Covenant, like, it's like, hold on, like, we have a holy God who has set up these these ways that we should operate, and we have priests who represent those people of God. Like, follow, follow what Yahweh has asked you to do, and he just doesn't do it. Yeah. I, you know, it's this transition from Samuel's speech, which is really moving, Israel's repenting and saying, help us. Um, and then Saul just really doesn't even seem impacted by it. And he just kind of goes on with his life as it was before, continues to try to go into battle and figure stuff out on his own, and then uh, doesn't have any kind of turning to God. And is like, oh, Samuel didn't show up. I guess I'll do this thing. Yep. Um, and, and missing out. We have not once seen Saul submit to God or seek to honor God in what he's doing. Yep. And, and we get a little bit of information about sort of the current state of uh, weapons technology as well, which is important to know. The the Philistines, as well as the Phoenicians, which are the other coastal group, like because of trade and because of where they're at, like um, metalwork and stuff like that, they were always ahead of Israel. And so uh, the group that was always like just – um, in terms of their weaponry behind most other countries was always Israel. Now that speaks to Yahweh's victories when they would do win, but um, the Philistines were way more advanced as a, as a people in terms of uh, what they had and what they could use. And they stopped Israel from ever making metal at this point or to, to do blacksmith work. And so um, that makes that those victories that, that Israel's about to have over them that much more significant. Yeah. So New Testament, we're picking up mid parables here. And so um, we get the parable of the hidden treasure. Now, like I hope you've noticed, we've had a few hidden things up to this port. Seed that was put into the ground, mustard seed that was put into the ground, yeast that was put into uh, hidden in the flower, um, and now treasure that is in the ground. Now, it's important to note as you sort of read parables, and, and, and we're going to see this as parables continue, not just this section, like often the the man the or the woman in the story, the main character, um, is often presented as God. And we've seen that already in the number of the parables that we've seen. And the question is, is that still true here? And and it's it's interesting because I, I think there's ways that you can absolutely read the parable of the hidden treasure. And I think it's still faithful to the text to read it as like, we are the ones who um, have, have 
not not by any sort of special magic on our own, but found the gospel because Jesus has shown it to us. And um, following Jesus, that that kingdom, that good news, is so good that we that we should be willing to With sell everything. whatever we want. Yeah, uh, to, for that, that it's worth it. The, the having Jesus, having the kingdom, it's always worth it. But but I also wonder, giving the idea that there's also often multiple layers at play. Um, it, that if Jesus is referencing Ezekiel 16 or, or something along those lines here, because in that story, you have God's people or sort of the remnant of God's people that is tossed into an open field. And then God is sort of coming along and he finds it. And and at that point, he's willing at cost to himself, restore his people. And, and I wonder if that's sort of the picture here that God for God so loved the world, for God so loved the his people, his kingdom people, the people um, that are called his, that he was willing at great cost to himself to come, take the form of a servant, and ultimately die, pay that ransom, pay that price uh, for the treasure, for his remnant, for his people, um, and, and that God is really the, the, the treasure finder, which if we are to act like God, we would do for the sake of the kingdom as well. And so, um, so I think the, the application, but I think that, that there's a, that deep picture because Ezekiel 16 also speaks about endowment and jewels and stuff like that. So the very next story where it's like, uh, somebody who uh, is willing to sell everything for this, for this jewel, for the adornment. It, 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 I think it has overlapped to Ezekiel passage as well. Um, with the same thing, the sort of idea that, that God was willing to spend everything, his, his only son in order, uh, in order to redeem his people. And so, yeah, I think it's so interesting. Yeah. So Um, we can see, we can see and interpret this in two different ways. And I I don't, I mean, I think because these are parables, it's not like one is maybe more faithful to the text than the other. I think we can learn equally from both that. Yeah. One of them is that we are the merchants in search of the fine pearls and we will give everything up that we would need to give up on this earth to achieve this one thing, which is salvation. But on the other side, which blew my mind when Chris talked about it is that we are, we are the pearl of great price or we are the treasure. And Jesus gave up heaven and um, being God and infinite for that brief time to come and die for us. It's, pretty mind-blowing to me yeah yeah uh and then we get this kind of parable of the net which is interesting because we just saw two parables of the kingdom and then a larger teaching around weeds and tares and wheat and all these things uh being caught together and eventually the the angels who would have to actually parse out the harvest and then we get these two little tiny parables plus this parable of the net which has to do with collecting these things, separating them out, and ultimately the angels being the ones who have to make the, that decision. And I, I think it's such a parallel story, this sort of connection here. And, and not only that, but we get another Ezekiel. Ezekiel 47 talks about the end of the age where there would be these fish, and the fish are actually representing both the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles are being caught in this net as well at the end of the age, and that um, there would be those who would be, would be sorted. But it's a Gentile promise specific idea here and then there's connections to the furnace and and that is a connection to abraham and sarah again because that's the first time we see that which there's a whole law of first occurrence all all these kind of things like there's so many little pieces to connect all these stories that there's not even a worth or not worth it's not even the time to go through in, in, in right now but um yeah i think there's there's such this idea of what the kingdom's like what what god is doing in 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 coming to buy to 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 purchase this field to purchase its land um and and that there's a um 
future trajectory on where both the good and the bad and the evil and, and those of the kingdom are, are coexisting and it's going to be hard, but persevere. Like you are worth it. God has done this work on your behalf. So keep at it and, and, and seek to, to, to think beyond Israel, to, to think through the Gentiles, to think through those that are outside the fold, which I think is what is, is a little bit at hand here with the Ezekiel 47 passage. And then we get the statement about new and old treasures, which if, if, if my interpretation around the soils is correct, that Jesus is ultimately saying, look, you, 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 the people that I speak in parables so that people keep wanting to wrestle and dive in and understand more of who God is and is willing to, 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 to spend time in his word, spend time in prayer, all those sort of things. And then I think there's this idea that like, look, every time you go to the storehouse, because it talks about disciples, the disciples here, not uh, the kingdom of God is like, or um, something like that. It, it says disciples are like, and, and, and they're the ones who go into the storehouses and find old and new. And I think um, e- even dealing with these parables, we're going to find an old Testament principle to explain a new covenant idea. And so uh, I, I think that's what we do. We go into the storehouses to go, okay, like there was this old Testament teaching that explains this beautiful, New Testament idea of who Jesus is, and we pull out the old and the new at the same time. Yeah, I think looking back at the parables, there are ways that we can read it and interpret it and how it applies to us in our lives, but there's also just as many ways that we can read it and look at it and figure out who Jesus was and what role he played really in our salvation. And so... Like I said last week, I, I, I feel like I've hardly even scratched the surface of the parables, but there's so much more to be gained and to learn from continuing to study and reflect and meditate on them because there's so many different ways we can read it and, and, and interpret it. Yep. Uh, so they're so rich and we're going to get more of them. Matthew's got more coming, um, but uh, they, they are rich and important and stuff that you, time and time again you can return to and, and it will not you will not exhaust the wealth of riches that you might be able to find. Yeah. So then Jesus heads to Nazareth where he's from and he does these great works and people are astonished and they're impressed, but they still reject him because they know him and they know his mom and they know his brothers. Yeah. Yeah. We get less details here from Matthew than we get in other gospel writers, but um, we do get even another Ezekiel reference, the, the sort of idea that the prophet's not welcome in their hometown um, idea. And, and, and yeah, they, they've, all these people that have grown up with him as sort of regular Jesus in, in many ways, they're, they're sort of like, all right, who, who, who are you? Like, where are you getting this authority from? Um, and, and they're, they're really challenged by it. Yeah. I find that we continue to see throughout Matthew, nobody's really denying what he's doing or that he has power or influence or speaks with authority. They just are rejecting from where it's coming or not willing to acknowledge that it may be coming from God. Yep. And we get John the Baptist being killed here. Uh, Herod's definitely violating some relational rules, and John calls him out for it. And it's it's kind of sad that you have like what Jesus just called the person Jesus just called like the greatest born of a woman. Uh, they sort of dies in this sort of sordid, sexual, weird kind of perversion that Herod and his family are involved in. Um, it's just highlighting the brokenness of the world that the man Jesus held up as like one of the greatest prophets of all time is just beheaded over 
a birthday wish. Yeah. And you know, I mean, it, it's another indicator that the way that we live as followers of Christ through what we say, but also just through our lifestyle is going to be offensive to people when it starts to speak out or poke or prod against these strong, strong idols they have. And so we may not be addressing circumstances like complicated marriages and affairs, but the way we live in our action and our word should cause others to have to acknowledge or confront the sin and failures in their own lives. Yeah. And, and Jesus seems sad. He goes away to a desolate place. There's some emotions on display. It's like he's grieved over the loss of, of John, his cousin. Um, and so, um, yeah, it's definitely a, a moment for Jesus. But he can't get away for very long. Everybody follows him. Yeah, and he has compassion on them. Yeah, he does. And they're in a desolate place. There's not a lot of places around there to get any food, which is still true to this day. Um, and and you, uh, he actually tells his people, like, you give them something to eat and and as if Jesus is the miracle worker, but his disciples, they're, they're the distributors of the food. They're the distributors of, of the manna of, of what, um, Jesus has to, to give them. Um, and remember our initial primers is a whole lot of numbers things. So like one is certainly a representative of God. Uh, two often is a representative of, uh, the, the commandments, the laws, the two tablets. Three is often connected to the Trinity. It's kind of a, a number of, of, of wholeness or community in some ways. Uh, four is often represented with the Gentiles for the four directions on the map. Five's like the Torah. Uh, six is sin. Uh, it's usually like the incompleteness or like man. So like if there's 600 or something, that's usually like not enough. And and usually the character is like going to try to do something on their own power at that point. Seven is much more a God number. It's like a number of completeness. Um, so seven plus three, like 10 would be the, the full number of community and completeness. Like 10 is a complete community. Um, 12 is also a, a number of, of sort of a wholeness in, in Israel or re- at least representative of the people of Israel and the 12 tribes. So you have all these different numbers. And so we get a lot of numbers in the story. We're going to get another story that's basically the same story just with different numbers in a little bit and next week too and so um it's important to to see these sort of things so we find out that there's five and two things to feed people with there's 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 the law there's the teaching there's the things that are being taught and jesus is teaching them jesus is teaching the old testament but jesus is teaching what he's going to be teaching and then there's five thousand people so there's five the torah community of people like 10 times 10 times 10 is is like the full number of a community. It's like as the thousands often matter. And so, um, yeah, you, you have the, this, this Jewish community, which we're going to see some differences in the next one, not only the numbers, but the, where they're at. And then there's 12 left over. There's enough for all the people of Israel and what Jesus is teaching and more than enough. And, and it will go out from there. And not only that, but other gospel writers have some like groups, people sit in groups of 50, all these kind of things that are going on. And I think it all matters because I think it's showing uh, things like Jesus being like Moses, but 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 it's a better manna and a, and a better distribution, and and that there's more than enough for for the disciples to to continue to teach and, and to spread what is true and to to feed people not just physically but with the word of God, and 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 that 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 is their job now, and that they should go both to the Jewish people and as we will see from another story to the Gentiles. And there's something to be said about us consecrating to God, but he's given to us and asking him to multiply it to care for others. And part of that is our faithfulness and obedience in how we give um, of our first fruits, whether it's with time or with money. But we say, Lord, I don't I don't know how far this can go, but I'm going to offer it to you and use it and multiply it for your kingdom. And we, and we see him do that. Yeah. 
And this is such a precursor to the disciples' work. Like mm-hmm. they will be sent out to be the bread distributors. Like if 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 bread is like the the word of God, like that is their job, and um, that's our job as as followers of Jesus. Like yes, it's Jesus's bread that He multiplies through our mouths, but we are the distributors of it. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. So then they sail off again. Yeah. Sailing on that sea. It's just bad news. And there's going to be storms and storms and there's another storm. And, uh, it seems like Jesus sort of lets them struggle a little bit. It's sort of late in the night before Jesus finally gets out on that water with them. Uh, but they cry out, which is important. Like we see Peter cry out and we see the group cry out and this group cries out and Jesus responds. He comes over to them. Um, and, and it's interesting because like one of the lessons around like disciples and their teachers, it's like they walk, you walk where your teacher goes. You walk where, where your rabbi goes. And um, I think in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the chaos, Jesus has power, has control over, over all of it. And, and Peter's like, okay, I'm here. I come, I'm, I'm, I'm walking, I'm, I'm doing the thing in the midst of all of it. Jesus, I, I trust you. Um, and, and he steps out of the boat. And, and I think that's not insignificant that, that, um, in the midst of the abyss, in the midst of, of all the things. And Jesus has just warned, like, look, there's going to be time where both the good and the bad exist at the same time. And not only that, Herod just got killed. All the people in his hometown just drove him out. Like, there are storms. And following Jesus is going to lead us into some of the same sort of chaos and storms. And, and it's a little bit of like, will you continue to walk and have faith and move forward and walk where Jesus goes and do what Jesus did? Even if it means that your family, even if it means that standing up for what's true might get you killed, will you continue? Yeah. And a couple other things just to point out here again is like Matthew's whole goal in this book is to prove Jesus is the Messiah. And here we have Jesus again controlling nature. He's controlling the weather. And that is something that only God can do. And a second thing I just want to note is that we see that Jesus went up by himself on a mountain to pray. And you guys, if Jesus has to do it, then we need it even more. So we need to have our own time to go and be with God and pray in silence and solitude. Yep. And so they get, reach the shore in Gennesaret, and uh, Jesus' fame continues to spread. And uh, at some point, these people are once again trying to touch the corner of the wings of his garment as if, like, you are the Messiah. Like, the wings of your garment will bring healing, as we saw in the woman in chapter 9. Yeah. And then uh, and then the Pharisees come to kind of troll him a little bit yeah. and start to ask him some more questions. Yeah, once again, this I mean, this is interaction between the rules that exist, all the, all the ways, and, and there's... There's all sorts of different ways this oral tradition exists, but all these rules the Pharisees have set up and, and Jesus kind of challenging them about it. It's like, look, like the Torah doesn't have an explicit teaching about washing your hands in this moment. And yet you guys are setting up these rules and in so doing they're, they're sort of um, causing um, uh, people to, to, I mean, they're, they're not, uh, enacting what the law was really meant for. And he even points out like Exodus 20 and Exodus 21, this teaching about parents. And he's like, but, but your laws are like dishonoring your parents. Like one says to honor your parents, but the way you've set up your laws, you're dishonoring your parents. And, and, and not only that, but he will get into a statement in, in what defiles a person around evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, like all the things that are part of the second half of the, of the 10 commandments. And, and, and I think what he's driving at with that story and what defiles a person is like, look, like the point of the law was not just about what's clean and unclean, but, but what really matters is your heart. 
and 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 not only that you love God, but that you love people, and and that the law is, should drive you to that. But because of your heart, because of your 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 stone heart, like that's why Jesus had to come in order to establish a new covenant where He can replace our hearts. But the Pharisees, because of their heart, like even in their desire to be as obedient as they want, because their heart wasn't changed, it was causing them to to not enact and and, and to not to not love God correctly, and particularly not to love others correctly. Um, they were they were using rules to to just abuse people with. Yeah, I mean to create tons of burdens on these people, especially the poor and the marginalized. And that's um, not an easy yoke, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I think we see Jesus continuing to reiterate this statement over and over and over through this book of Matthew to point out that the lessons that the Pharisees and the scribes and these religious leaders needed over and over and over again was that um, Jesus and what he offers is for everyone and to stop putting heavy burdens on them, but to receive the freedom that comes from knowing Christ and getting to the heart of what worship of him looks like. It just makes me think of the, the strong man story that we looked at last week. Yeah, it's amazing how often Jesus just deals with these Pharisees and going, you, you, you should go study these words. I desire mercy, and he quotes uh, uh, from the Old Testament, and and, and that's just a struggle. Um, I think at times they're being obedient and they're following Torah. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with following Torah, uh, but when you add things to it, and in so doing, you don't actually show mercy and compassion towards the people that God has called you to show mercy and compassion. You, you're living with the wrong rules, and and Jesus is is pretty straightforward with them about that. Yeah. So consider some of the traditions you hold fast to. Where are you valuing tradition over um, the heart or trying to even to earn your own salvation? Is it through giving exactly 10% of what you make or showing up to church every Sunday, but then doing what you want with that other 90% or not applying what you learn in church? Let's all step back, myself included, and consider what kind of traditions we have and where are these becoming burdensome rather than life-giving and offering freedom? Right. And and be thankful in the new covenant that there's a new heart that we have that we can actually have freedom to operate out of that's the easy yoke we have a, a we're a new creation of which to operate out of and that's good news proverbs 6 yeah so i mean this is kind of a funny passage to step into because it's like follow my <laughs> teaching but you have to kind of go back and start at proverbs 4 to look at that but the main theme we see here in proverbs 6 is a warning against sexual temptation and sexual adultery and how you know i mean that phrase like if you're gonna don't play with fire unless you want to get burned he's like you can't entertain little ideas sin is a slippery slope and no matter what decisions you make it's going to affect someone you can't just have a sin that only affects you yeah yeah if you're gonna have a if you don't if you're having an affair, if you don't think it's going to destroy you, it will and cost you your whole life. And, and that's pretty um, a heavy warning out of Proverbs 6, which is important. Yeah. So next week, Old Testament, New Testament. Yeah. So next week, we'll read about how the Lord, again, rejects Saul. Pay attention to why he was rejected. Think about how God set up Israel. We spent so much time looking at how God wanted Israel to run and how he wanted them to be a priesthood. And um, why does God reject Saul? And in the New Testament, I just think, uh, kind of follow Peter's story. We've already seen him walk on water. Uh, pay attention to what his life continues to look like through this next section as well. Yeah, and for me, um, yeah, w- watch David's actions compared to Saul's start. I mean, David, it's definitely presented as different. But also, uh, when David first gets out there to the field where the battle is with Goliath, and he hears Goliath um, speak, um, his response there, I think, is pretty telling for like, why David is who David is and uh, what his priorities are. Even even though David's going to have his 
plenty of mistakes in his life, particularly as he gets older. Um, like I think, I think some of the starting phrases that we get out of David kind of explain like why David is kind of, I mean, the, the star of David is still the sign for Israel because of mm. who David was. And so, yeah. um, and then new Testament, think, think through the numbers between the feeding of the 4,000, 5,000 and what I just said about some of the numbers, like what, what do you think Matthew might be working towards in giving us both the stories? Because not all the gospel writers do, uh, giving us both the stories where they are and what, what do you think he's trying to, um, help his reader to hear other than Jesus did more than one miracle. That's great. But why tell these two stories? And so uh, I think that matters. But uh, that's it for this time. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Bye.